So we've been spending Sunday mornings this summer working our way through one of the most captivating narratives of the Old Testament, the story of Joseph. It's the saga of a fantastically dysfunctional family that in spite of their best efforts, simply cannot escape the grace and the promises of God. The story began with the thoughtless favoritism of the family patriarch, Jacob. Of his 12 sons, he loved Joseph the most, showered him with favors, the most notable of which was this beautiful ornamental cloak. As you can imagine, this did not go down well with the other kids. When Joseph dreamed on two separate occasions that his family would one day bow before him, his brothers just couldn't take it anymore. While they were out caring for the flocks, together they beat Joseph, they sold him into slavery, returning home with his bloodied cloak, claiming he'd been killed by a wild beast. With this cruel deception, they broke their father's heart. By the time we get to chapter 42, our reading this morning, it's been 20 years 20 years since Joseph dreamed his dreams and the brothers sold him into slavery. Since then, Joseph has been a slave in Potiphar's house, a prisoner in the royal jail, and for the last seven years, he's been the right-hand man of Pharaoh himself. He's shown faithfulness and resolve, and God has been with him throughout the years. But now... Now Joseph's faithfulness will be tested as the tension of the past 20 years breaks out in the long, slow climax of our story. Now that climax takes place in chapters 42, 43, and 44 as Joseph's brothers make their way to Egypt and the family is forced to deal with the sin and deception that have shaped their lives for two decades. So this morning we're going to stick with chapter 42, but we're going to look at some themes that permeate this slowly unfolding climax as it continues on in chapters 43 and 44. Those themes are the fear of Jacob, the guilt of the brothers, and then the wisdom of Joseph. And with each one of these, we'll not only gain insight into the forces that motivate our main characters, but those things that motivate us and shape us as well. So we begin with the fear of Jacob. Chapter opens with Jacob scowling at his sons. There's no food, and his boys, these grown men, aren't doing anything about it. Why are you standing around looking at each other, Jacob says to them in verse 1. There's food in Egypt. Go buy some so that we don't all starve. But of course he doesn't send all of them. In verse 4 we're told, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared the harm that might happen to him. Now, Benjamin's the youngest of the 12, and he's a full brother of Joseph. His mother was Rachel, the most beloved of Jacob's wives, who had died in childbirth. It's not hard to understand the attachment that Jacob has for him and why he keeps him home. But the repeated favoritism, it must have galled the other brothers. Eventually, nine of the brothers return from Egypt with a strange story to tell their father. The governor of the land had accused them of being spies, kept Simeon as a hostage, and demanded that they return with Benjamin in order to prove their honesty. Only then will he allow them to purchase food. Well, Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go. In verse 36, he says to his sons, "'You have bereaved me of my children.'" 
Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Jacob then continues in verse 38. He says, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother's dead, and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now, tragedies have a way of shaping us. Anyone who has ever lost a child will tell you that while the pain may become less acute over time, it never leaves. Grief is a resilient emotion. But something more than grief is at work in this chapter. In the two scenes that featured Jacob, what drives him isn't grief so much as fear. Fear that he might lose another son and be thrown into sorrow once again. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, he says, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to shale. Now, there's something darkly tragic in that statement of Jacob's. What Jacob fears, what he fears the most, isn't the potential for harm to come to Benjamin, but the pain that he would experience if harm came to his son. In both instances where Jacob is featured in the chapter, he's driven by a fear that is self-centered and tinged with self-pity. All this has come against me, he says in verse 36. And you see how this fear has warped his love for his other sons? He refers to Benjamin as the only one left in verse 38. He doesn't even see the others. He barely acknowledges that by refusing to send Benjamin, he ensures that Simeon will rot in prison. And he puts the entire clan at risk of starvation in order to protect his favorite. Now, Jacob's fear is understandable. I think we can relate. It's understandable, but it is neither healthy nor acceptable. It's self-centered, and it is deeply corrosive, eating away at the life of his family. But it's even worse than this, because at the end of the day, Jacob's fear is a rejection of God, and it's a refusal of his love. That's what happens when a man or a woman is driven by fear. Ultimately, what fear says to God is, I think this, this thing that I fear, is more powerful than you are, and I don't believe you love me enough to protect me from this. That's what fear says to God. Now, it's fairly easy to spot fear in other people. It's harder to acknowledge our own fears because they often lie so deeply hidden within us. But it's important to do so. The truth is that most of us have fears that compete for space in our hearts. We fear for the safety of our children, the future of our nation, the specter of death. Now, of course, certain types of fear are healthy, right? There's the terror that makes you back away from a copperhead. And there's the sensible caution that ensures you carefully buckle your two-year-old into her car seat. Jacob himself, he was right to fear starvation for his people and to urge his boys to action in finding food. But other fears are an indication of idolatry. Jacob feared the loss of his son because he had become more precious to him than anything else, including 
the promises of God. Jacob's entire sense of well-being was caught up in the health of his son. Now that's a fear rooted in idolatry. If you make decisions based on what ifs, rooted in fear, then something's off kilter in your soul. If your imagination is held captive by a few recurring thoughts, or you stopped talking to God about certain things because you don't see the point, it's time to step back and ask, what is it that I'm afraid of? It's a question worth asking, even if you don't consciously struggle with fear, because it has a way of getting at our root motives and illuminating those things that will take the place of God in our hearts if we let them. We need to name our fears and then deal with them. But how? How do we deal with our fears? So it's common, it's common to talk about conquering your fears, right? And I appreciate the sentiment, but it's bad advice. You can't conquer fear. Fear is this invisible foe that will endlessly circumvent even your best efforts to beat it down. The only thing you can effectively do with fear is to hand it over to someone more powerful than the fear itself, and that's the God who created you. We deal with our fears by naming them in the presence of God, confessing the idolatry latent within them, and then asking the Lord to release us from them by filling our hearts with his love, crowding out the fear by denying its space. As the apostle John says in 1 John, perfect love casts out fear. And the only perfect love we will ever know or experience is the perfect love of our heavenly Father. So the fear of Jacob, it frames our chapter, but it's not the only motivating force that's at work in our story. The brothers are shaped by something else. They are shaped by guilt. So when they sold Joseph into slavery, the brothers knew that he was being taken to Egypt. Now after all these years, they have to go there themselves. And perhaps that's why they were so hesitant to act when famine hit. The last place on earth they wanted to visit was Egypt because it was a visceral reminder of their guilt. But they didn't have a choice. As soon as they arrived and tried to buy grain, things got really weird. The governor accused them of being spies and despite their protests, he threw them into prison, having told them to choose one brother to return home to fetch Benjamin and bring him back as proof of their innocence. On the third day, the the governor brought them all out of jail and changing tactics told them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. There's nothing like sitting in jail, the threat of death and a change in plans to get you thinking really hard. We read in verse 21, then they, the brothers, said to one another, in truth, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress 
has come upon us. 20 years have passed since that day that the brothers refer to, and it haunts them as if it were yesterday. Their honesty and integrity have been questioned by this strange governor of Egypt, and they are squirming as a result. Even though what they've told him is true, they know that they are not men of integrity, but men of violence and deceit. And their sin has stuck with them, and it will not let them go. When I was 14, a friend and I uh, decided that it would be funny to steal another friend's car. I don't think my daughters know this story. What I hadn't reckoned with before getting behind the steering wheel was that the car was a manual. It was a miracle that I got it moving in the first place, but it lurched and sputtered down the street, picking up a pile of brush along the way and bouncing off the curb as I struggled to control it. When the car stalled in front of a house, I've I've clearly risen some strong emotion, and poor Hallie. When the car stalled in front of a house 200 yards down the street, depositing that pile of sticks and limbs that I had dragged with it, I noticed a neighbor standing in his yard, scowling at us like something out of a 1950s sitcom. So we laughed it off, but later that afternoon, I was battered by this sense of guilt. What was I thinking? What if I'd hurt someone? Did that old man get the license plate and call the cops? That afternoon, I kid you not, I sat in my bedroom, peering through half-closed blinds, waiting for the police to turn up and take me away. And my reaction was fueled by an overactive imagination and way too much television. But the story, it exemplifies something that we all know from experience, guilt is powerful. When you have done something that you know is wrong, guilt sticks with you. Notice how the brother's guilt shapes their experience again later in the chapter in verse 26. It's more subtle this time, but it's there. Verse 26, then they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? So you might think that discovering a sack of money would be a good thing, right? But the brothers can only think of it as a bad omen, perhaps a reminder of the money that they were paid for the life of their brother. God's up to something, and it isn't good. Except that it is good. Because like the coins placed in the top of each one's bag, guilt, it's actually a gift. Guilt is a gift because it forces us to acknowledge the presence and the power of sin in our lives. When we ignore our sin or try to hide it, it doesn't go away. 
It gets packed into a corner of our hearts waiting to be dealt with. And as it sits there, what it does is it obstructs our relationship with God and it corrupts our relationships with other people. Sin's got to be dealt with. And one way in which God pushes us to deal with our sin is by giving us the extremely uncomfortable gift of guilt. Guilt is a prelude to grace because it leads us to confession and ultimately to restoration with God. And we see this actually happening with Reuben in the middle of the chapter. His guilt over what they did to Joseph bubbles over and he says what they're all thinking, now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And he hasn't quite dealt with his sin, but he's acknowledging the fact that they can no longer escape the consequences of their actions. That's the first step toward repentance and restoration. If you're wrestling with guilt this morning, I wanna encourage you to let it be a prelude to grace by leading you to confess your sins to God and to those against whom you sinned. Without confession, guilt, it can't be a prelude to grace. Instead, it becomes a path to misery like it so clearly was for the brothers at this point. Well, there's a lot more to be said, but we need to, find, to turn to our final theme, which is the wisdom of Joseph. So his brothers were older now. We've got 20 years of graying hair and sun lines etched onto their faces. But Joseph knows them the instant he sees them. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. Now, reading this from a distance, we wonder, what in the world is Joseph up to? In this moment, God's promises have been fulfilled. His brothers have bowed down, literally bowed down before him. And so we expect either instant retribution or open-armed reception. Joseph has all the power in this moment. But instead, we get three chapters of caginess and manipulation. What is Joseph doing? Well, to put it very simply, he is testing his brothers. So remember, all that Joseph knows of his brothers is jealousy and cruelty. Can he trust them? Is the family safe under their care? Are they still the kind of men who will sell one of their brothers into slavery for a profit? Or have they changed? So Joseph devises a series of tests. He puts them in prison and forces them to select a single brother to return home. He then surprises them by changing tack and sending home all but one. He returns their money as a sign of grace and as a test of their integrity. How will they handle it? Each of these acts and those in chapters 43 to 44 are tests of their character. 
an effort to determine the extent to which he can trust himself and the rest of the family to their care. Joseph isn't playing with them, nor is he punishing them. He's carefully working toward the salvation of his family and the protection of God's promises. Now, we don't have time to probe more deeply into the actions that Joseph takes, but I hope you'll see how careful, restrained, patient, and thoughtful he is. He doesn't brush aside the past as if it never happened, nor does he give in to anger at the memory of his abuse. He refuses to allow himself to be driven by emotion, even though he finds himself bursting into tears when his brothers express their guilt. Throughout this chapter and the next two, Joseph exemplifies wisdom. I think of wisdom as the careful pursuit of the glory of God when life comes at you in shades of gray. So black and white decisions are fairly easy, but gray on gray puzzles are far more common. We can face these challenges with fear, which has the convenience of turning everything into black and white fight or flight. Or we can face these challenges loaded down by the baggage of previous sin that hampers our decision making and continues to corrupt our relationships. Or, or we can take each new challenge as an opportunity to pursue the glory of God and the goodness of his people. That's wisdom. Joseph is given to us as a model, not of perfection, but of wisdom. In a broken, confusing, and dangerous world, we need this kind of wisdom to obey and honor the Lord. And the only way to find this wisdom is to seek it daily from him. Jacob's driven by fear, the brothers by guilt, and Joseph by a deep and abiding hunger for wisdom. And behind these men and their actions, behind all of them stands the grace of God. God's gracious in the midst of famine, providing food for the entire region. He's gracious to Jacob in protecting his sons, all of them. He's gracious to the brothers in allowing their guilt uh, to hound them toward ultimate repentance. And he's gracious to Joseph 20 years on in fulfilling his dreams and proving himself faithful. And he remains gracious to us, ready to free us from our fear, to remove our guilt, and to grant us wisdom when we ask. Let's pray for these things now. Lord God, we thank you that behind this story you stand as a God of grace, showing grace in the midst of fear and guilt and wise leadership. Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us the fears that govern our hearts, that push you out. We ask that you would fill our hearts with the knowledge and experience of your love, that your perfect love would cast out fear. Lord, we come to you bearing the guilt of our sin and disobedience, and we ask that this guilt would be a prelude to grace as we come to you in confession and repentance. Give us the guts to come to you with our sin.
to be cleansed by you. Lord, we come to you uh, uh, as fools who desperately need wisdom. In a complex and broken world, we ask that we would be driven not by fear or guilt or other motives, but that we would be led by a deep and abiding hunger for wisdom to bring you honor and glory in word and deed. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.